0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's summer. You're sooner thinking of the pool or park than your fall ballot. But we're keeping an eye on a key measure, HH, ostensibly to ease property taxes, in effect, though, doing more.
1: I think it does go further than that. I I think it's dealing with state revenue problem more generally and the ability to fund education in particular, but also other things that local governments do.
0: Then, at the height of the pandemic, Johnny Howe saw a news story about a Colorado man who came out of the closet at age 90.
2: It moved him. The thing is that at the time, I wasn't out yet, so watching his story inspired me to write to him. Howe's
0: correspondence with nonagenarian Ken Feltz turned into a love affair.
1: If you have a car you're ready to part with, have you thought about donating it to Colorado Public Radio? Car donations from listeners like you are a really important part of CPR's funding, and it's easy to do. Just fill out a form, schedule a pickup, and supply the title. Soon, your car will be on its way to help fund the fair, fact-based news reporting you count on. Get started at CPR.org support. And thanks.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner in Benedict Fountain Park near our studios in Denver because it's summer and my mind, frankly, is on getting out of the office. But like you, I am capable of taking in both sun and new information. Here to help us with the latter is CPR's Andrew Kenny, a member of our public affairs team. Hi, Andy. Hello, you're in your full summer outfit. Legs showing. (laughs) You are here with an eye towards fall, when a big item will be on Coloradans' ballots. And it's understandable if their minds are more on pools and parks than ballots these days.
3: And frankly, I'm glad we're in the park right now, because I've been stuck thinking about Proposition HH for weeks, and it's like a whole property tax, state finance thing, and I just wanted to go outside, so I'm glad we did. <laughs> we are actually surrounded by homes that might be affected by HH. That's right. So HH, if you've heard of it, you've probably heard that it is a measure to cut property tax rates. We're all going to be voting on it in November. But part of my interest in it and what we're talking about today is that it's only part of the picture. It could also take away Tabor refunds. It could loosen the state's spending limits. And it could ultimately actually
0: deliver more money for public schools. I mean, it seems like a lot for one measure to do. I guess remind us first how it got on the ballot. My, this breeze feels good. (laughs) This breeze does feel good. Unfortunately, we have to keep talking about property taxes,
3: though. Don't get distracted. This thing really seemed to spring out of concerns about property taxes rising. I think we all know this really hot property market the last few years has resulted in folks' bills going up, like 30% is not an uncommon number for this coming tax year. And so lawmakers and other interest groups have been kind of negotiating behind closed doors for months about how to create a long-term solution. What did they do? So Democrats introduced this measure in just the last week or so of the legislative session, and they rolled it out and they voted on it, and they said, we're going to ask voters this November to approve this gigantic tax package, rearrange the whole state finances, and cut property tax rates.
0: So that's how we got Proposition HH, which, again, Democrats are billing as their response to rising property taxes. Maybe for the condos that are towering over us there, or these low-slung, older Denver squares on the other side of the park. But what exactly would HH do to people's tax bills? Well, it is indeed a property tax break, like
3: we were saying. Your tax bill, it's hard to say how much it affects different people, because your tax bill depends on all these different factors, like what's your home worth? Maybe these homes are worth a million at this point. What's your local property tax rate? But Proposition HH changes the statewide variable and basically gives a discount to every property owner on whatever their tax bill would have been. You did some math around this discount. I did the math. And by my math, you know, if you've got say a half million dollar house, you might expect to save like $400 a year if Prop HH passes. That's compared to what your bill would have been otherwise. So like your taxes will still go up as your values go up, but that's only half the tax equation. What's the other half? Well, the other half is something that most Coloradans know of and maybe love, maybe hate a little bit. It's Tabor refunds.
0: Those checks that come in the mail that are from a kind of government surplus.
3: Yep, the checks are one form of the Tabor refund. Basically, when the economy's hot, we all get money back from the government because the government's not allowed to keep that much tax money. But if Proposition HH passes, those refund checks could start to get smaller and smaller. Basically, government keeps more of your tax dollars, so your tax burden is going to
0: go up in a way, too. So even as property owners are getting a tax break from that first side of the equation, they might be losing out on potential refunds. That's right. Actually, everybody would be losing out on
3: potential refunds because those are paid out to not just property owners, but renters. And what's happening is that refund money is getting relocated or repurposed. The first thing it's being used for is to pay back the schools and the other local districts at least some of the money that they're kind of missing out on as a result of the property tax cut. It's paying for the property tax cut.
0: Right, because schools are funded by property taxes, so are some other local services. And if Colorado cuts property taxes, that would be less money for education, so the state's gonna make up the difference. This is the interplay between the two sides. Yes, the interplay. The state's gonna make up part of the difference, at least.
3: So the result, though, is that, like, there's some winners and losers right off the bat. You know, property owners, again, are getting that break on their taxes, but then everybody's sacrificing their refund. So, you know, if you don't own property, you could be losing out as a result of this.
0: If you're just joining us, Colorado Matters has come into the sun in a park near our studios because it's summer and our minds are on the outdoors. We're also trying to keep our attention on an important ballot measure. We don't want you to lose sight of it. Andy Kenny certainly doesn't from our public affairs team. This is Prop HH that will be on the November ballot and we are keeping an eye on it. So what are taxpayers potentially giving up to make this happen? Even as we know, there are some gains to the tune of about maybe $400 a year. You asked what
3: they're giving up. Let's start with what they're getting. Property taxpayers could save a cumulative billion dollars a year and then more later as a result of this. But on the other hand, we could also be giving up substantial amounts of Tabor refunds. We could lose $800 million of Tabor refunds in 2027. That's the last year I have a projection for. And then by the end of the decade it could affect up to $2.2
0: billion of Tabor refunds. Oh, okay, so that starts to become serious money. Mm -hmm. Could we then be giving up more in refunds, and remember that's renters and owners, than property owners are getting as a result of that first aspect of HH? That's the big
3: crux question, one of the big crux questions to me. And the answer is it depends, like in fairness, It's really hard to predict what happens with the economy even a year out, much less 8 to 10 years out. But if the economy is strong, then yeah, the state could end up holding on to significantly more tax money than it actually needs to pay for the property tax cuts. This could actually end up growing the state budget, even as property taxes are somewhat reduced. Huh. And where would that go? Schools still? Yeah, that's the other big question. And you are correct. If Proposition HH brings in more money than it needs, quote unquote, then all that extra money, which could be into the hundreds of millions, could be a billion some years, all that extra money just goes into the state education fund for the most part and becomes like new dollars for schools. And that's leading some people to say that this is not just a property tax measure, but could actually kind of be a school funding measure in some respects.
0: Huh, Okay. And there's some
3: consternation, some debate about that. That's right. So if you ask Governor Jared Polis, and you actually did ask him this, he doesn't really play up the schools thing. His administration is saying this is not a schools measure. This is really a property tax cut. i uh, was saying it's all kind of designed to balance out in the end. And if it happens to maybe benefit schools a little bit, that's really not the goal. Well, I, you know, I mean, you're looking at what economic modeling is. I mean, you can come up with, you know, three scenarios where it does and six scenarios where it doesn't. Uh-huh. Um, We don't have a Tabor surplus every year. And and we've had a record economy. Uh, The time I've been in office, we've been fortunate to have Tabor surpluses. But many years, there are no Tabor refunds or surpluses. In those years, people in Colorado would still get the the full property tax cut. So they get the property tax cut, and it does nothing to Tabor because there is no Tabor surplus in those years. So it it really all depends on the economic analysis around a particular year, whether it even impacts Tabor or not. Andy, what's everybody else saying? Well, other influential Democrats actually are saying more openly that yeah, this actually could help with schools and that they hope it does. Uh, They're saying that if the economy is strong, like it could finally help the state meet the constitutional requirements for school funding, that it's it's kind of been underfunding schools compared to what it's legally supposed to do for years. And they said, "Yeah, yeah, this is a good chunk of money. And that within a handful of years, it actually could be big for schools if the economy cooperates. Here's Representative Chris Degree Kennedy. He's a Democrat who sponsored the measure.
4: You're not wrong. It should help schools. It should especially help schools over the longer term. But it's really not the most elegant way to do it. If our goal was to you know, really raise the kind of money schools need to be the best funded schools in the country, this is far from the way I would have done it.
0: Even among Democrats, different messaging going on
3: here. What are conservatives saying? Well, conservatives have really ripped into this measure. They say that The education funding is a whole, like, secret mission of this ballot measure. And they're actually suing with the argument that the proposition is so broad that it's actually unconstitutional. What's their objection to the school
0: funding in particular, though?
3: Well, it's not that they're saying they don't want to give more money to schools, but they say this whole measure would undermine the taxpayers' bill of rights. You know, HH, at its heart, lets the state budget grow a good bit faster than it would otherwise it really loosens some of the fiscal restraints put in place by Tabor. Conservatives say that's going to be just a blank check for government or for schools. Democrats, on the other hand, say it's just an adjustment. They point out that we've loosened spending rules in the past and still gotten big refunds, and they say that, you know, voters will still keep their power over future tax changes, so Tabor is still intact and you get a property tax cut and maybe the school's going to benefit. It's all very complicated, though, and I'm curious to see how voters react to this.
0: Yes, especially once the pools close and the parks aren't quite this sunny. Thanks so much, Andy. Thank you, Ryan. CPR public affairs reporter Andrew Kenny joining me in Denver's Benedict Fountain Park to talk about Proposition HH, which voters statewide will decide in November. When we come back, a love story 90-plus years in the making. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, it's Vic Vela from CPR's podcast, Back From Broken, returning for season four. More stories about the highest
4: highs. That moment changed my life. The darkest moments.
5: I started itching
4: violently. And what it takes to make a comeback. Admitting to somebody that I need help took way more strength than a physical action. Back From Broken. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. With support from Step Denver.
0: He came out of the closet at age 90. Ken Feltz spoke to us back in 2021. During the pandemic, he'd begun writing his memoirs and remembered Philip, a great love he'd had as a young man before eventually marrying a woman. When Feltz shared his late in life coming out story with us, I asked if he imagined ever getting married again to a man this time. no. <laughs> <laughs> you've done you've been there done that that's correct that's
6: correct now of course if it was uh, philip uh, i'd marry philip again <laughs> hmm.
0: philip however died in 2013 so Feltz's no there was pretty solid but as i've heard it said life is what happens when you're making other plans because ken Feltz of arvada has remarried at age 93 And Ken, congratulations. Introduce us to your new husband, will you? Thank you. My new husband is Johnny Howe.
6: And uh, Johnny and I have been together about two and a half years. Uh, He's just the nicest thing, the best thing that's ever happened to me. So you met him, what, shortly after we spoke? Yes. He saw one of the programs that was being aired around the world, and he sent me an email suggesting that he would like to meet with me. Well, I was getting about 200 emails a day, and so I was pushing some of them aside while I was trying to uh, take care of some of the rest of them. So, I don't know, a few weeks later, I ran into his, and he uh, had posted that he'd really like to meet with me, and I noticed that he was living locally. So, I thought, well, that's good. That that sounds okay. So, I made a phone call, and I asked him what kind of food he liked, and he said Asian. So, uh, there's a um, Namiko's restaurant near us, and I said, we'll meet there. And we did. I had our blind date. And we <laughs> uh, got there with our mask on and because this was during the pandemic. Uh, we went inside and uh, we're seated. We had a very nice dinner, but we didn't take our mask off until the salad was served. So that was the first time we actually saw each other. We found that we had things to talk about. And eventually uh, the place was kind of like we need to get out of here. And I said, okay, (laughs) uh, let's go sit in my car. And we did. Uh, We sat there and talked. Well, soon after he got in the car, he reached over and took my hand and I didn't pull it back at all. So we sat there, him holding my hand and we talked and we talked. And finally I said, Johnny, I've got things to do. I've got to get going. Uh, And he said, okay. He came back about a minute later. He said, I forgot my phone that's in your car. So, uh, he stuck his head in and got the phone and while he had, had his head in there, he said, shall I follow you home? Well, what could you do with a question like that? I said, you most certainly may. And so he followed me home. We talked at my house till almost dawn and then he went home, but we had made arrangements at that time for him to come back and he did. He came back and again, and again, and again, mm-hmm. and again, that fine date went on forever. <laughs> and yeah, when his, uh. Uh, lease ran out of the apartment he was in. He just moved in here, and we've been together ever since.
0: My goodness. I-, I just want to say that your story really grabbed global media attention of coming out at age 90, so it makes a lot of sense to me that Johnny would have seen your story. And Johnny, what prompted
2: you to reach out to Ken? Well, the thing is that at the time, I wasn't out yet. So watching his story of uh, you know never too late to come out, that inspired me to write to him, Hmm. uh, letting him know that I really found encouragement from his story. Just said, thank you for uh, putting out that message uh, because he really spoke to me. I wasn't really expecting a message back.
0: You're obviously out now and and Ken's story then helped you come out. How how old were you then when you came out, Johnny?
2: Um, It was, Actually, just last June, <laughs> June 6th, uh, that's when I finally decided to come out to my family. And now I'm, I feel like him, free. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. free. And how old were you then? Oh, I was 33. So
0: you're mid-30s now. Correct, yeah. Okay, so Ken, this is a May-December romance, I guess. Well,
6: maybe, yes.
0: Although, <laughs> the numbers are something in your head they
6: don't mean a whole lot it's our feelings that mean the most
0: what do you remember talking about johnny at that japanese restaurant
2: so i'd ask him more about his coming out story i just wanted to learn more about him about um philip i wanted to know more about why he stayed in the closet for a long time and um, Mm -hmm. some of the things that he had mentioned also in interviews was um, having a support system and I I didn't have any of that and growing up I knew that I've always been attracted to older men and that was another fear of mine that uh, how will society see me Uh, now I'm I'm much better (laughs) because I know what I feel for him and I know we're in love Mm. and I just disregard basically if uh, comments I've heard <laughs> trying to be as happy as I can and trying to make him happy as I can.
0: Johnny, why didn't you come out until your thirties?
2: Um, for one was uh, my family, fearing of not being accepted by them. I grew up in, in Mexico. I was brought up Catholic, and part of it was that, that religion.
0: How did they react, or do do they know?
2: Yeah, so I told them last year, and they're very acceptable of uh, me coming out. And another reason why I talked to them was because uh, I noticed that another family member, he appeared to show uh, traits of being gay as well. And I don't know, I guess I, I want to let him know that, hey, I'm gay also, so it's okay.
0: The ceremony took place in your backyard in Arvada, uh, because you're, you're living together. Um, Correct. I don't know. Each, each describe your favorite moments, Ken. I guess my favorite moments was when
6: the uh, director of the LGBT Center conduct our ceremony and when he uh, uh, had us exchange rings. Hmm. Uh, I think that kind of sealed it for me that, hey, this is really happening. This is really true.
0: Want to describe the rings?
6: Uh, the rings are uh, made out of Hawaiian koa wood and coral on a uh, platinum base.
0: My
2: goodness, uh,
6: they're beautiful. Uh, yes, we love them.
2: What was your favorite moment, Johnny? I would have to say it's uh, when he read his vows. He had a poem he had written. I just love um, his poetry, his writing.
0: I understand that. It's actually why I wanted to have Ken read from the poem that was on the invitations. Ken, would you read that for me?
6: Yes. Near the end of my days, and in the heat of my night, I found a great love whom I shall ever hold tight. We explore our new world with breathless delight. Together we glimpse a future so bright. A memory from my past comes soft on a breeze across shipless oceans and dark, waveless seas. But I lie with my love and my soul is at ease. To my heart he
0: now holds tightly the keys. Johnny, I love you. Well done. Is there a honeymoon, Johnny?
2: We're perhaps going into a quick trip to uh, New Mexico. (laughs) To
0: New Mexico. Oh, that's the land of enchantment. Seems perfect uh, for an early (laughs) marriage.
2: Any plans to
0: change your names?
2: Mm, I've been looking into changing mine, but I'm still undecided.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Still undecided. Yeah, it's a big decision.
2: How was the cake?
6: Very good. Very good. It was not a traditional cake, and we did not have a traditional wedding. (laughs) But the cake we had was delicious, and we enjoyed it a great deal, and I think the uh, guests did also.
0: It had a rainbow on it, didn't it?
6: Yes, it did. And we had... uh, statue of two men kissing on the
0: cake. Thank you both for being with us and congratulations.
2: Thank you. No, thank
0: you. Ken Feltz of Arvada came out of the closet a few years ago at age 90. On July 8th, he got married to Johnny Howell. Special thanks to Sonia Doktorian for help with this story. See photos of the big day at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
4: Small monument in Denver marks one of history's more prosaic moments. It reads, On this spot in 1935, Louis E. Ballast created the cheeseburger. Colorado's first drive-in, the Humpty Dumpty Barrel, once stood at Firth Court and Spear Boulevard. A truer statement on that monument might read that the first trademark for the cheeseburger was awarded there as eateries across the country make earlier claims to the invention of putting cheese on a patty served inside a sliced bun. But less ambiguous is the origin of another diner favorite. 1893, Cripple Creek brewer Frank J. Wisner gazes east to Cow Mountain. Its snow-covered peak above darkened slopes inspires him. He drops a scoop of ice cream into a mug of root beer, inventing the root beer float, or as he called it, the Black Cow. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio.
0: You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Free meals go to any Colorado student who wants one starting this fall. Research shows it may be the healthiest meal kids get all day. Well, school nutrition directors gathered in Denver recently to discuss how to make cafeterias more appealing. And they sampled the latest trends in school food. Here is CPR education reporter Jenny Brindine.
7: Danielle Bach and her team have already developed a plan of attack. They're looking onto the Colorado Convention Center's 584,000-square-foot show floor.
5: We think ahead about the folks that we want to talk to, the type of products we're looking for, and we hone in on those people.
7: She's the nutrition director for Greeley Evans School District 6. Her big question... Are there better ways and items to plan, cook, and serve her 22,000-student district? As districts gear up for the launch of the voter-approved Healthy School Meals for All, Greeley might be a test. It's already been offering free meals for all for the past three years. 94% of Greeley students ate at school at least once this past year.
5: Now, my staff think that we can serve 100% of kids, and I tell them that's a lot of meals. So, I'm gonna shoot for 95% next year. That's what I want.
7: Let's start with packaging. Packaging? Yeah, packaging. Students pay attention to that now.
5: What if I can get 94% of our students to eat with us 100 days out of the year? by adding something that is convenient and attractive.
7: Box looking at a sleek sandwich wedge in upscale-looking compostable packaging, something students might see off campus. I'd like to know about these. Yeah, these are what we call our grab-and-go green line. So these are a 99% compostable product. It costs, but Greeley 6 executive chef Chris Simmons says there are trade-offs. Because when you have packaging like this, you're also not
3: having to wash the dishes. You don't have the tray coming back. So you're saving the water and the soap and the
7: chemicals for for doing the dishes. And
5: what we're hearing from the generation of kids that we have now, even as young as third and fourth grade, is stop putting our food in plastic. Kids want recyclability and kids want a greener solution.
7: Denver Public Schools Nutrition Director Teresa Hafner says kids, however, are also influenced by billions of dollars in marketing, and she's got to compete with that. Though 62% of DPS students are eligible for free and reduced-price lunch, just 30 to 40% took breakfast last year, 55% took lunch. Hefner's banking on next fall's free meals for all and a later start time for older kids to boost numbers.
1: And we feel that we might capture more kids who want to eat breakfast a little bit later. Maybe they weren't hungry for it at 7.30 in the morning, but maybe they are now at 8.30.
7: Even higher income districts expect to be serving many more kids. Douglas County used to serve a quarter of its students. It's expecting a 40% increase in meals served. Cherry Creek School will increase by 30%.
1: This is so exciting. I am super excited about this.
7: There's something else at this conference to entice a new generation of students. It's a massive green fruit from Asia, but when cooked, it's a vegan or vegetarian option to pulled pork or chicken. She tries an enchilada bowl using jackfruit from a Dole representative.
1: Here you go. Let me get a piece of cilantro on there for you. And it's going to have brown rice, some black beans, a little bit of green enchilada
7: sauce. Hafner loves it. School directors are looking for alternatives to meat, which is hard on the environment. A whole section of the show floor is devoted to meat alternatives. Along with Denver, Greeley Six has a sizable population of Muslim students who don't eat pork and some other prepared meats.
5: This looks like whole muscle. It looks like a real chicken nugget.
7: Danielle Bach tries a plant-based nugget. That is really good.
5: What is the, the protein? What are we using? What's this made out of?
8: protein. And to have a taste and texture that really mimics that of chicken, we went with soy protein.
7: The rebellious foods booth is hopping after some students from Littleton gave them rave reviews in a conference session.
5: Chris, how would we use that? My first instinct would be to use it for
3: like boneless wings. The wing bars have been really popular in our high schools and boneless
5: wings are in really high demand.
7: Whether it's packaging or funky new alternatives, The goal is to keep kids either in or somewhere near the building during lunch.
5: Simply put, it fuels them to learn. None of us function well when we're hungry. Kids are no different. So when we're nourishing them, they're going back into class and they're succeeding.
7: Jenny Brendine, CPR News.
0: There are new efforts to pass Spanish on to the next generation in Colorado and to preserve a dialect specific to southern Colorado.
8: Everywhere I've been in the quote-unquote Spanish-speaking world, outside of northern New Mexico and southern Colorado, has never heard of or nor do they even use the word puela. And that's the only word we know for frying pan, whereas the rest of the Spanish speaking world uses the word sartén. Aaron
0: Abeda co-directs a homeschool consortium in Antonito. They are part of a pilot with a group called the Language Preservation Project. Denver Public Schools is also working with the group. I wonder what problem you saw in the community that you wanted to address.
8: Well, to me, the loss and the poverty that exists here in in my hometown where I've lived, honestly, in my core and in my heart, I've lived here before I was even alive, you know, because I'm the 7th of 9 generations, so it's this sort of passed down hereditary sense of home. It's like a heart home. And uh but the poverty and the Generational poverty that exists here has at its roots colonialism and loss and fear and doubt and all of those things which colonialism, in my opinion, breeds. But the first thing that was outwardly taken, you know, were tangible things like land and water and civil rights and things like those. Then the assault on language happened. And then when language goes, then identity goes, and when identity goes then the the ills of poverty and isolation seep in. And those are things like drug use, alcoholism, neglect, apathy, complacency, all of those things. So to us, language was one of the linchpins because language is the way back into identity. And identity is a way into understanding who we are and where we're from and knowing where we're from and who we are. Well, that reconnects us with the land and the things that were lost, even if we don't literally regain the land. Hmm. or regain the water.
0: It also makes me think that because of colonialism, there was such shame carried around language and that if you can counteract shame, there's an empowerment in that. There's perhaps a sense of I can versus I
8: can't. Most definitely. I mean, I was blessed that my grandmother taught me Spanish. uh, And this is not to be derogatory or disparaging towards my parents, but my parents were literally beaten in school for speaking Spanish. So when me and my siblings came around as any parent you would hope would do to protect their child or children in our case, Mm -hmm. they chose not to teach us Spanish because to them it was a, well, it was painful, literally painful for them to speak Spanish. So we were lucky enough. My, my brother, Andrew and I to learn it from our grandparents.
0: And I, I think it's, such a kindness for you to understand why your parents would not have taught it to you given their own experiences the abuse that they suffered i want to note that in other places not just in colorado the language preservation project is working with younger kids but in antonito it's it's high schoolers and i wonder why you are focusing on older students
8: yeah so it's not that the younger kids don't struggle with same some of the very same things that the older kids struggle with but it was our opinion that the teenagers, the high schoolers in particular, uh, eighth graders on the cusp of being in high school, that they are in a closer state to the very same perils we've been talking about. Hmm. I mean, they're, they're in closer proximity to those perils than the younger kids. So it was one of those things where, you know, it might be an older group of kids. They might not, you know, integrate and retain it the way a younger audience and a younger kid would. But they'll understand that a necessity of identity through language. And that's why we wanted to start with the older kids, just because we just feel like they're more in danger if that's uh, both literal and figurative danger.
0: Yeah. I mean, give me an example of a literal danger that you hope a program like this can help combat.
8: Of the 44 kids that we have? We have about three with both parents at home, like 10%, basically. So lots of kids affected by directly through their immediate family with drug addiction, with abandonment, with all sorts of uh, different types of neglect. So that danger is literal in that that's the example that's been set for them. And we're trying to counter that with our curriculum and the curriculum that the Language and Preservation Project helped provide in this case was to reconnect with their language.
0: Now, the linguistic approach, it's called heritage language preservation. And when you talk about a heritage language, is it Spanish or is it even more specific to the dialect we mentioned in our introduction?
8: Oh, it's most definitely Spanish. I, I, I You know, 90% of the words that we use, you know, we might transpose an R and an A. Like we have a lot of people say parte instead of padre.
0: Hmm, for father.
8: I don't know why that happened, but we say part of this, some of us do, but it was not like people in the Spanish speaking world, you know, out, at large wouldn't understand what we're trying to say. So I'd say, you know, 80, 90% of it is quote unquote Spanish. And I've been to Spain, I've been to Mexico. I subsist and I get along just fine in those places. Uh, but every once in a while I'll crack out a word that I use here that they've never, ever heard of. When I was in Spain, I, I really love hats. I wanted to buy a cachucha and I went into the store looking for Cachuchas, and every place I went to, they looked at me like I was from Mars. And I was like, oh, traditional Spanish, Gorra. And then, oh, okay, you want a hat. Do you
0: have a name for the dialect?
8: Well, not uh, not that I'm aware of. Okay. I mean, I know it's been studied by Dr. Luis Trujillo, by Dr. Ruben Covos. Both of them uh, created dictionaries of the northern New Mexico and southern Colorado Spanish. But other than it being called northern New Mexico and Southern Colorado Spanish, the name I would call it over and over again is heritage language.
0: Heritage language. And and it is a mix as well, the remaining percentages. There's yeah, French,
8: English, Spanish, Nahuatl. Yeah, there's definitely some French in there. We use a word "hehen," which some people understand is a mosquito, but most places refer to mosquitoes as sanculos or mosquitos. But the "hehen" is a indigenous Nahuatl. You know so uh, we use that word around here and very few people that i know of would choose to use that as a indicator of a mosquito
0: ute as well right
8: um, yeah so like we have uh, some villages one of them mogote that's a ute word it's weird right because we're isolated you know just because of rural community high elevation just far from any metropolis really but linguistically we're so integrated at least in the heritage language. It's it's kind of cool in a way. Uh, it speaks to conquest too, though, and it speaks to colonialism. It speaks to you know, manifest destiny and all those things. But the fact that all of those things were preserved in one dialect in one pretty small location is pretty unique if you think about the enormity of the entire globe.
0: Back to Spanish specifically, I'm curious what portion of kids in the school speak Spanish?
8: In our particular school? Yeah. Zero percent. Mm-hmm. We have two or three kids of the of the forty some that we have that understand it pretty well. Uh, we had a couple of kids that were really good at the you know what I will call book Spanish or traditional Spanish because they've you know had it previously, like as a as a class, so they knew some of that relatively well. But no, none of our students speak it as a first language.
0: Here's a student of yours named Sierra talking about how growing up, her parents didn't speak Spanish, but then. She moved in with her grandparents, who did. I think you'll probably recognize this story uh, in your own experience.
1: I started picking up all of, like, the little sayings that they would say and how they used to, like, speak in Spanish to each other when they didn't want us little kids to hear. Or if, like, oh, we're going to go blah, blah, blah over here in Spanish and so they can go by themselves and not have to take a bunch of kids.
0: You mentioned the abuse that is part of this story. I mean, that's certainly one reason a language isn't passed down. What What are other barriers?
8: Well, I think that abuse leads to this sense of shame. I mean, to speak your heart language and then to be told that that is wrong, and not only so wrong, but so wrong as to be beaten for it, creates a sense of shame and the sense of fear and it's my opinion, I don't know that there's any scientific data to, to back this up, but that that shame is passed down and it manifests itself in these different ways that we're not even aware of. So by the time it hits, you know, 2023 and you have high school kids that are trying their best to speak their heritage language, that shame may be captured in the moment. Oh, I screwed that up. You know, I shouldn't have said it that way. How embarrassing. But that shame is not anything new. If you look at the At the way that the parents, our parents, being beaten in school for speaking Spanish, theirs was a different sort of shame. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, it's the same thing. I'm ashamed of speaking Spanish. They're more ashamed of their failures or their inadequacies or their starts and stops or just any mistake that they might make in a way that they wouldn't be with other subjects and mistakes they'd make in those other subjects.
0: I think this is a really important point, right? Because if you're going to acquire a language, you have to be uh, willing and in an environment that accepts mistakes.
8: Right. Yeah. Yeah, we still we still make mistakes speaking English, right? Right. We all make mistakes, whether it's speaking or math or living. I mean, it's, it just happens. But for for whatever reason, the shame associated with language is like, You can see it on their faces. You can see it in their body language. You can see it in their reactions immediately. Whereas if they were to make a mistake, you know, on a math problem, you know, they might get upset or whatever, but it wouldn't be ashamed of making a mistake on a math problem. Here's
0: another student from your class named Rudy. He said he wants to learn Spanish to keep it alive here and to expand his horizons, to talk to more people in his own family and in the world. And he said he eventually wants to pass it on to his own kids.
2: Because it's a part of their culture. It's a part of their history. And it's what my parents, their grandparents, their parents have done throughout the years. And I'd hate to be the one to break it.
0: Rudy made those comments after your final project. Um, How does it feel to hear him say that?
8: I'm actually a little choked up, if I'm being honest. There's something happening to my eyes right now. Uh, But no, I I mean, that's the mission of our school, and that's the reason for the project in the first place, and that's just spot on. What, What did you
0: have the students do in class? Like, is there a tactic that people elsewhere in Colorado could replicate, whether it's in school or just within a family?
8: They took culturally responsive texts, culturally competent texts, but texts that were intended for much younger audiences, and then they analyzed them with the frameworks of high school teenage learners. So to me, that was very unique. On a second level, I really appreciated that the texts that the kids were learning were these mirrors to some of the experiences they had gone through and were going through. And it's just a rare occasion where books reflect who we are, especially in school, because most texts and most books reflect a mainstream perspective and none of these books did so all of that's uh, in my in my opinion easily replicable buy books which represent the students in your class and let's just find some texts that we can read on a really basic elementary level but let's examine them with the cognition that we have as young adults
0: pretty cool How do you make sure that the students stick with this? Because you you can't learn a language in a single year,
8: right? No, and I mean, that's our hope because, you know, of the mission of our school. Whereas most high schools require one, maybe two years of foreign language, we're going to offer it every year. Uh, We'd we'd hope with Language Preservation Project, but, you know, that was funded through a grant to the Margot Foundation Who are wonderful and powerful allies of ours. And if not with them, then with someone that can keep this, you know, proverbial ball rolling.
0: That is Aaron Abeda, educator and poet in Antonito, Colorado. We spoke in May. His poetry collection, by the way, is called Ancestor of Fire. Thanks to the Language Preservation Project for providing that audio of the students. We'll be right back with Barbie's Colorado Beginnings. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
4: Great classical music to keep you company through the night, it's night music on Colorado Public Radio. For a list of the music we're playing tonight, visit us online at CPR.org.
0: From 1959, here's a TV ad for a new American toy.
7: Barbie's small
6: and so petite. Her clothes and figure look so neat. Her dancing outfit rings the bell. At parties she will cast a spell. Purses, hats, and gloves glow. And all the gadgets gals adore.
0: Barbie has come a long way since then, and now she stars in her first live-action movie, one of the summer's most anticipated. So, we want to revisit a bit of Colorado Barbie history. The woman who created the ubiquitous doll was born in Denver. Ruth Handler was also the co-founder of Mattel. She was inspired by her daughter, Barbara. Yeah, that's where the name comes from. Robin Gerber is the author of Barbie and Ruth. We spoke in 2019. So Ruth Handler was born in Denver in 1916, was raised here. How do you think that shaped who she became?
1: She ended up not living with her family. I think that was probably the most significant part of uh, what shaped her as a young woman. She was the 10th and last child of Polish Jewish immigrants. Tenth, And her mother was pretty ill by the time she came along and gave her as a baby to her older sister to be raised. And the older sister who didn't have any children herself, never had children, ran a store. And so Ruth very early had this image of a woman actually being an entrepreneur. I think that was very impactful for her.
0: Do you think they did well in this store?
1: Yeah, no, it was in a marketplace in downtown Denver. Uh, That was very influential on her. It It was a real entrepreneurial venture to do that for them. They came from, as I said, from this immigrant family. So, And they did very well, yes. They actually moved to a nicer neighborhood than where Ruth had been born. And, you know, she loved Denver, but she came to California, Southern California, when she was uh, an older teenager and kind of fell in love with it. I think the sunshine and the warmth is what did it.
4: Okay.
0: <laughs> but she worked from a, a very early age in that entrepreneurial spirit, That sort of hit her early, I guess. Ruth met her husband, Elliot, in Denver. They moved to Los Angeles during the war. And that's really where the toy-making got started. How did that happen?
1: Yes, well, her husband was a creative genius, Elliot Handler. Uh, He was called Izzy in Denver, but she had him change his name because she was worried about anti-Semitism. And so uh, she said, now, when we move to L.A., you're going to change your name and be called Elliot. And so he did. He always did what she said. That's what he said. I always did what (laughs) Ruth told me. (laughs) Uh, He was a rather shy man, but he loved to create things. And during the war, he was using wood scraps and making dollhouse furniture. And Ruth just took it and sold it. She was a great uh, natural entrepreneur and was a wonderful salesperson, loved selling. She said it just got her high to go out and make a sale.
0: And Barbie was Ruth's idea. What made Barbie different from other dolls back in, I think it's like 59?
1: Yeah, that is the the core question about the doll. Ruth had a daughter named Barbara, and she would watch her play with her friends, and they loved to play with paper dolls, which were adult dolls, and pretend to be adults. And she watched this and said, well, they need a doll to play at being adults, and there, one did not exist. There was not a doll that really looked like an adult. That was a play doll. There were some display-type dolls. And so that was the impetus behind the idea of actually making a doll like that. But, of course, her designers, who were all men, including her husband, said, don't be ridiculous, Ruth. Mothers will never buy a doll with breasts for their daughter." Oh, I see.
0: Uh, versus dolls that had just been babies to that point. In fact, I think the doll bombed when it debuted at the International Toy Fair in 59.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, And you're right. There were only baby dolls, and Mattel did not want to get into the doll market. They were not in the doll market. And Ruth prided herself and Elliot on getting into the markets in a new way. So this was a new way to get in. She finally convinced the research department after she found a prototype in Europe. And they made the doll and she debuts it at Toy Fair, as you had to do with toys. And the buyers, again, all men who came in, especially the Sears buyer, they bought the most of anything, uh, essentially ignored the doll. So she was desperate. She was really worried.
0: How'd she make it happen?
1: Brilliantly, as always, she had hired a psychologist. This was a new thing. She had hired one of the first madmen to do focus groups, which no one did. Again, it was very innovative. And he discovered that uh, mothers would allow the doll to be bought if it looked like if they uh, marketed it as a teenage fashion model to teach the daughters good grooming. And so that's how that ad that you played at the top of the segment That's how that got developed. It was around showing Barbie as this teenage fashion model that girls could get and learn to dress nicely and fix their hair nicely, and mothers bought into that. And so they started running these ads based on his research. His name was Ernest Dichter. And at first the doll didn't sell, but as soon as school let out in June, girls couldn't get enough of these dolls. So they sold 300,000 Barbies the first year
0: so the the doll was indeed named after Ruth Handler's daughter Barbara and the male doll Ken after uh, Handler's son i understand they didn't like that much
1: no they didn't i think you could understand after all barbara having this doll that did have rather prominent breasts and this very sexualized figure which we it it absolutely was i think she probably endured some uh being made fun of and of course the ken doll is not anatomically correct. And so same for him. So no, they were not particularly happy about it.
0: You know, I think that Mattel has really struggled over the years with what Barbie is or should be. I mean, there wasn't an African-American Barbie for a long time. And the message earlier on was much more about Barbie having fun with her friends, you know, over pursuing a career, for instance. Uh, it's It seems it took Mattel a while to come around, but now there's all kinds of Barbies, scientist Barbies and Barbies of every hair type and complexion, I guess.
1: Yeah, I actually wrote the 60th anniversary book for Mattel. And in doing that, I was actually delighted to learn, as I interviewed people at at Mattel headquarters, that they've returned to Ruth's vision. Because she had a very simple, high-concept idea. Little girls want to play at being big girls. And Mattel has really come back to that. Their tagline now is, you can be anything. And that's what Barbie is meant to represent allow girls to think about being anything. And as you say, they're coming out with non-traditional dolls that represent non-traditional careers like Beekeeper, uh, an Explorer Barbie, that kind of thing. And then they have these dolls that are modeled after not just celebrities, but sports stars, historic figures like uh, Frida Kahlo, Rosa Parks. So this really is going back to Ruth's original vision, and I think it's great.
0: Do Do you have a Barbie?
1: I do have some Barbies, yes. Mainly President Barbie. That's the one I uh, like the best.
0: That is Robin Gerber, author of Barbie and Ruth. We spoke in 2019 about the creator of the Barbie doll, Ruth Handler, who is from Denver. The Barbie movie is expected to be a summer blockbuster. It hits theaters Friday.
3: And I'm bad like the Barbie. I'm a doll, but I still want to party. Pink felt like I'm ready to bend. I'm a 10, so I pull in a can. Like Jazzy, Stacy, Nikki. All of the Barbies is pretty.
0: And that is Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC. I'm I'm